Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at First Christian Church, both to you here in the West and to our congregation in the East. We're very glad you're with us today. And uh, we've got a really cool thing taking place today in the life of our church, and that is that not only am I preaching here, but one of your staff pastors. Let me introduce myself, by the way, for our guests. My name is Wayne, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, for the next seven weeks or so, uh, we're helping out another church in the community, Lovington Christian Church. And so... um, uh, Pastor Brian is preaching over there this week, and uh, we're looking at ways we can work and help with them in the days ahead. So to be, probably in a few weeks, you'll start hearing us say, welcome to the West, welcome to the East, and welcome to those of you in Lovington as well. So we're very glad all of you are here, and uh, it's good stuff. So I'm very glad you're here, and we're looking forward to seeing what Scripture might tell us. If you'll take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of First John. Now, that's different than the Gospel of John, okay? So... The Gospel of John is the fourth book of the New Testament, but we're going to look way towards the back end. Same writer, just a different book, okay? 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to look. If you don't have a Bible in the East, there are some people moving around right now. They'll be glad to give you a Bible. Here in the West, you'll find this one in the pew rack in front of you. Maybe you want to grab it on your smartphone. Whatever the case, if you don't own a Bible, stop by the welcome desk on your way out today. We'll be glad to give you one, all right? We'll look forward to that. While you're looking for 1 John chapter 3, um, in the Pew Bibles, it's on page uh, 1859, if you need to figure that out, page 1859, because there's a book that you don't perhaps come across very often, but uh, I'm going to start today with, if if you don't mind, with a little bit of discomfort. Everybody into a little bit of discomfort? Do you want to, here's a word for discomfort. You ready? Junior high school. (laughs) Yep. Junior high school, adolescence, puberty, all that stuff together. And so if you're here today and you're somewhere in that age, like from about late fifth grade, sixth grade, all the way through, I don't know when that all stops, but ninth, tenth grade, somewhere around in there, that, that you know, young teenager, we want you to know, I remember it. I remember those days and I remember how difficult it was and some of the things that were going on in my life and just... We, we get that uh, we know what it's like for you right now. And uh, here's what I experienced. You would, you would see that, okay, you've, you'd come to the end of the school year, May or so, and friends would leave and you'd go off to, and you'd come back in the fall and things would have shifted over the fall dramatically. The little girls were no, weren't so little anymore. And the boys, they went off in May with smooth faces and came back with beards down to here, or at least their voices had dropped all the way down to there. And it's... It, I've got to tell you, I understood all that sort of stuff going on, but I, the, the relationship stuff that went along with all of that and how people started relating to one another, it's still a mystery to me. It's still a mystery to me. I think I figured it out because our family faced some unique settings and dynamics in that period of time that, I mean, it's where we were, it's how things were. I don't have anger or bitterness about this, but I'll tell you what happened so that so you can understand why I don't know if I got the relationships thing figured out. So I was born and raised in Australia to fifth grade. And when I started school in kindergarten, I went to school with all those same kids all the way through fifth grade. But then we moved to Canada in the beginning of sixth grade and had a series of moves for a number of years every year. So at the beginning, I was in fifth grade in one school. At the beginning of sixth grade, I was in a different school. Stayed there the whole school year. Then we moved that summer, and I was in a different school for seventh grade. Then I was in a different school again for eighth grade. And then again, halfway through eighth grade, we moved again. 
So I was in five schools between fifth grade and eighth grade. Then I got to stay at that school through ninth grade. Then in 10th grade, I, we moved again. Or when I was my sophomore. And the kids who I met in 10th grade were the ones I graduated from high school from. And I graduated high school with them. And I got to tell you, um, as I think about all those moves, and I get why we did it, and like I said, fair enough. Um, but I remember this overwhelming sense of disorientation each time I'd walk into a new school and uh, moments of wandering down the hallway, wondering what's going to happen. Who am I going to meet? Who's going to be kind? Who's going to be... How's this going to work out? Well, when we, when we moved halfway through the eighth grade, I really had some new hope that maybe this school will be a little bit easier because there was a, a young girl in that school who went to the same church that our family went to. As a matter of fact, our parents were dear friends, and her father was my junior high boy's Sunday school teacher. And I thought, okay, this, this young lady is going to provide me with some friends and pro provide me with a way into the relationships of that school. No such luck. I don't know why, but for some reason or other, perhaps because I was the new guy in the school, perhaps because of her own difficulties that I never understood, you know, you'd change classes, right? And, and the period would come to an end and you'd go from one classroom to the next, and she'd see me coming. And she would literally turn her head and pretend to be looking somewhere else. So, seriously, so that I would pass by. And I was so afraid at that point of saying anything that she never, in all those years in that school, a year and a half, she never once acknowledged me. But then we'd get to church and it was like I'd be part of the friendship group. And you'd go, like, man, people acting one way in church and a different way outside of church? Who ever heard of that, right? <laughs> Hello? All right. I quickly learned that she didn't want people to know that she knew me. And am I wounded as a result? I don't know. Perhaps. I, I, I know this. I'm better equipped as a result of all that, all those moves. I'm better equipped to walk across the room and say hello to someone who is obviously a stranger in the room. Because I remember over and over again what it was like to be the guy in the room that nobody knew. And so that's good. On the flip side, though, I'm quite aware that it's in those years that you figure out how to do relationships to some extent, and I still don't have it all figured out. Sometimes I feel like I'm an old man in a young body, about 12 years old. As a matter of fact, I am. <laughs> don't I look to be about 12 years old? No, I'm... If you're like me, aren't you? Because you get to this situation with relationships, and you go, Tell, somebody explain this to me. I feel like I'm in junior high. Why is it there are, there are good ones, there are bad ones, there are non-existent ones, but they're kind of there, and there are the overbearing ones, and the crazy ones, and the loving ones, and somehow they're all meshed together, right? And they got the no line, there's no straight lines, it's, ooh, it's all... <laughs> Doesn't that describe relationships sometimes? What's going on? And then in the middle of that, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ... You're supposed to love everybody in the middle of those, that stuff? Well, let's see if we can do a little bit of untangling of that today. This sermon is part of uh, the series that we've entitled Timeless. And uh, <laughs> Timeless really came out of an understanding that I turned 60 in the month of June. 
And so in the month of June, the thought was we should do some lessons that Wayne's learned thus far. Lessons thus far. What timeless lessons should Wayne have learned by now in regards to life, in regards to love, in regards to uh, family, in regards to ministry? And so we've already done that. As to some extent, we'll do a few, few more of those yet throughout the coming uh, all of June. And um, by the time we get together this time next weekend, I will have turned 60 years of age. And People are talking to me about it. Wayne, how's, are you warming up to the idea? And I think eventually I'll get there. I've made this decision that I'm going to have, in my 60s, I'm going to be, be certain that my time in, the, in my 60s is just as energetic and as active as I was in my 20s. I'm just going to have 20-year-olds do it all. We're going to hire more people. That's what we'll do, okay? Or, you know why? Because now... I'm on, if I'm on the other side of 60, then I'm old enough now to do all the things I said I was going to do before I'm 70. I've got to get them all in now. So I'm going to have to have some other people be active for me, I guess. I don't know. No, it doesn't work that way, does it? I know. But I do know that I've got to figure out this relationships and love stuff. And if I'm the pastor, shouldn't I be giving you some counsel as to how to manage that? Well, if we want to get some counsel in all of that sort of stuff like this, maybe the best place to go is to Scripture. So we're going to read from the, um, the book of 1 John, not the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. As a matter of fact, he was one of the original four. And uh, he wrote a book called the Gospel of John, a biography of Jesus. But in addition to that, towards, late, towards the end of his life, he also wrote a few more books, one of them being 1 John. And um, let's see what it has to say, what he has to say, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message, he says, you heard from the beginning. In other words, you've known about this for a long time. We should love one another. All right. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed to death from death to life because we love each other. If you want to know if you have become a follower of Jesus Christ, a determining factor in that is do you love other people? Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How do you do that? Well, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech. Don't just talk about it, but with actions and truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. By the way, he says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, if we've got some things settled with God, then we know we have confidence from God and receive from him everything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Coming out of all this is what do we do? We just, we, this is his command to do what? to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Now, we're going to see if we can work our way through this passage of scripture today in a way that um, 
unpack some of this love. But to do that, I need to uh, give you a brief and quick notice about how the New Testament uses this word love. And there are a variety of Greek words in the original texts that speak to love and that when, if you read it in the original language, all those different words mean a different aspect of love. But when it gets to English, we only have one word that translates all of those, okay? So there are nuances that you have to be able to, if you will, understand some of the Greek. And let me give you just three of the basic words of love. There are more than this, but three basic words within the New Testament that describe love and are translated as love. First of all, you have agape love, which means you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a love for all. It's an unconditional love. I, I love people. And then as, as your love... Um, narrows down, if you will. The circle becomes, I have, I have love for all people, and then I have, a, 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 I don't say more intense, but a more focused love for those who are in my immediate family. And then I have an even more focused love for a marriage relationship. And when, when we say, so you can get the words, okay? Eros is where you get the word erotic, and uh, philia, philia um, that's where Philadelphia gets their name. Philadelphia called the city of love, right? Because that's where, that's their, the basis of their name. And then you have the word agape, where this is this love for all. And when we read in scripture that God loves us, like for God so loved the world, or that sort of love, that's the word agape, this unconditional, you, you get to be loved by God even though you didn't do anything to deserve it. And when we say we want to love people, then that's the kind of love that John is talking about. Because throughout the passage that we've just read, every time he uses this word love that's translated into English as love, he keeps using the same word agape. So in verse 11, for example, we should love one another. So he's saying we should agape one another. We should have unreserved, grace-filled love for all people. We know in verse 14 that we've passed from death to life because we agape one another. We have this no limits, no, full of grace, love for others. In verse 18, dear children, let us not agape with words or tongue. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Or verse 23, and this is, a, his, this is his command, that we are to agape. We are to love one another without reservations. And I think I would expect that that's the goal of all of us here today. We want to we wanna be open. We want our lives to be transparent. We want to be willing to take in other people's lives, their lives and their stuff and just love them. But who are we kidding? There are moments when love goes astray. And the very beginning of this passage, verse 12, is where John points that out. He says, we should love one another. And then verse 12, don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. He's, he's, he's saying, you know, sometimes love can go astray. You've got two brothers. This goes all the way back to, these are the two sons of Adam and Eve. You got Adam and Eve, the first two humans, and their first two sons are Cain and Abel. And they, they, there's this loving family, and yet in the midst of that loving family, something went awry, and Cain ends up murdering Abel. The love got all messed up. We have stories like that from our own time. Some of you may recall a news story from the early 90s that focused on the family and the life and the love of a, of a family from, from Southern California. And two brothers, do you remember these, these names? Lyle and Eric Menendez, some of you may remember that. Young guys, they murdered their parents. They were 21 and 18 years of age, 1989, and their parents had, were wealthy. 
These two guys had all, the, all of life in front of them, and long story short, they murdered their, their father and mother in cold blood. And in between 1989, in August of 1899, when the murder took place, to seven months later when, when they were arrested, tried and convicted for the crime, in that seven-month period of time, they blew through $700,000 of their parents' wealth. They just spent it lavishly. Now, the conviction sent them to prison without any opportunity of parole. So here they are, late teens, early 20s, we're going to prison for the rest of our life. We will never get out of prison. The authorities didn't want them together. They sent them to two differing prisons. They hadn't, would never see each other again. Now, here it is. Since they were sent to prison, the sentencing was completed. It's 22 years later in 2018, all right? Here's what happened. The authorities, in just in April, agreed that they could be housed in the same prison unit. You would expect, okay, all kinds of bitterness and betrayal. I, you, murdered, you murdered dad, you murdered mom. We did this because you wanted money and you got all this stuff swirling around. And I spent the last 22 years in prison. I'm going to spend the rest of, my 22 year, rest of my life in prison all because of you. You would think there'd be all those jabs and barbs and everything, right? What do you think happened when they saw each other for the first time after 22 years? They embraced, they cried on each other's shoulders. Think about this. I find that fascinating. Two hardened criminals who allowed greed to overtake their love and their respect for their parents. And the, uh, what a mess, right? You've got bitterness and greed and misunderstanding and betrayal and love. It's very strange. It's very convoluted. All, there's no straight lines. It's all mixed up. And I expect that within our own lives, we have these same situations where, man, in our relationships, we have relationships where there's misunderstanding and where there's betrayal and anger and bitterness. And in the middle of it, we also love. So if that's the case, how can we get how can we be in a new place spiritually and emotionally? How can we get closer to what Scripture says, verse 12, don't be like Cain? My little paraphrase in the middle there. Someone who's with a very, had convoluted relationships, obviously, with his brother and his parents. Don't be like Cain, someone with convoluted relationships. Instead, John says, we should love one another. How do we get there? Well, this is where I'd like to say that, if I could, uh, maybe some years of observation of life and some information from Scripture might help do us some good. So I have an observation list tonight, today, pardon me, of ways in which we could just say, let, let love flow a little more easily. First observation, based on Scripture. Not everyone's going to like you or love you. Some people, they're just, they're going to be like the woman, the young girl that I mentioned in junior high. They're going to turn their back and not want to be associated with you. You know, we, you would have thought in that setting that with our parents being as close friends as they were, and yet she basically denied that she knew me around our classmate peers. And you've had that story repeated in your life at times, haven't you? And perhaps you're a kid right now in junior high, and you're so glad that the summer is here because you've got a couple of months where you just don't have to deal with all those people at school who are unkind to you. Or you're at work and people aren't kind to you. And you wish you had the summer off because that would be really nice. You know what? John has some words for you. 
Verse 13, he says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Is this a shock? The world is messed up, in other words, and it impacts our lives. Some people simply don't like you. You may not like them, but what do we do? We don't have to like them, we just choose to love them regardless. I'm not saying you have to live with them, I'm not saying you have to have breakfast with them. And there may be some some distance between the two of you, but what what did mature Christians do? We choose to love regardless. And how do we do that? We step into compassion, the scripture says. I understand how it goes. Sometimes we're so far down in the weeds of relationships that we lose sight of the responsibility that all of us have in every relationship if we're a follower of Jesus Christ. We have this, this responsibility. We have a responsibility to let people know that Jesus loves them. That's our compassionate move. And we've got to be able to somehow or other get to the place where Jesus was on this. I mean, how is it Jesus was hated by so many and yet he still loved? This is how we know what love is, John says. 1 John verse th- chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Here's Jesus with a lot of hate directed his way, right? He's got crowds around him, and there are, within those crowds, for the time he was in ministry, there was a growing conspiracy of hatred directed toward him that would eventually take him all the way to the cross. But Jesus got past the animosity directed toward him. He took a higher view. He saw the larger picture. You know, one of the other gospels in the gospel of Matthew, that biographer says that Jesus got a larger perspective because as he would look out over the crowds, he would see them as individuals, see people as individuals. And it says that he would extend compassion to them this way. Matthew puts it this way, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. John says, if we're going to do what Jesus did, have some compassion. Mature Christians are those who say, man, I got to look at some people and I got to see where is the harassment in their lives because sometimes that harassment is causing them and leading them to hell, literally. And we as followers of Jesus Christ, if you follow him today, we say we step into compassion because with our influence, we can lead people away from that harassment and point them through eternity with Jesus Christ. In other words, Christian love has some action behind it. And you say, wait, wait, action. You said I wasn't going to have to live with them. You said I wasn't going to have to have breakfast with them. And action really sounds like I'm talking to them, and I really don't want to talk to them. Well, true. But what are you going to do with this call from John? He says, if anyone has material possessions. I mean, this is compassion with, with legs on it, right? This is, not, this is not just saying, well, I hope the harassment stops. But this is compassion with legs. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, then how can the love of God be in that person? Hey, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. In other words, they may not like you, and they may send a lot of hatred your way, but you can take the high road. You don't have to trade jab for jab or barb for barb. You can get above the weeds of hatred and do something for that person. What could you do? At the very least, your compassion could start with prayer. You could start with prayer. You could write a note. Hey, thinking of you today. 
Don't expect an answer. It may end up in the trash, but what happens? You're saying, I'm, I'm still loving you. And if you're a person of prayer in the midst of all of that, you may receive some shocking answers to your prayer. You know what the shocking answer might involve? It might involve you. Here's how. Live the silver rule. The silver rule. What's the silver rule? Because you, we know what the golden rule is, right? We chatted about it last week. Do you to your neighbor what you'd like to have done to yourself, right? That's the golden rule. But what's the silver rule? Don't do to others what you wouldn't like to have done to you. So this, the golden rule is to say, I'm going to do something for someone else. The silver rule is, I'm not going to do that because I wouldn't like that done to me, all right? Because we all know what it's like to have been mistreated. We all know what it's like to have, in the midst of the harassment to be really, really just hammered. I mean, have you ever been mistreated? At work? At school? In the family? Probably, right? Have you ever been mistreated in the church? You know, can I speak to the church, to the congregation as a, as a whole? Or to the church, capital C, but to our own congregation. You know, treating people harshly, shading the truth, manipulation, entitlement thinking, not keeping promises. I think we can all agree that none of us like to be treated like that. And yet it happens in the church. And the civil rule says, if you don't want to be treated that way, don't treat others like it, period. Wayne, how do I do that? Well, you've got to take a long-term, adventuresome look. All right? I find this particularly helpful for me. Because when I think about the love of God, this agape love of God, I think of how God's love for humanity is a long-term love. Do you know the story? Back in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They really messed up. And back then, God says, I'm going to put a long-term love plan into action. Back there in Genesis, eons ago, God says, I'm going to send Jesus Christ. And you move forward years, Jesus Christ comes. Jesus comes, he dies, he rises from the dead, he goes back to heaven, and we're told that the final chapter of this love story is going to come in the future when he's going to return again. It's a long-term adventure that goes all the way back to the beginning of time in Genesis. And it's still not yet complete. But in the midst of all of that, you have God saying in Genesis, I love these people so much that even though they did me wrong, I'm going to put a long-term plan in place. And it's still being played out. That plan met its, met its um, apex, if you will, at the cross of Christ. But it's still yet to come. There's a culmination yet in play. And you and I can choose to live a similar life approach. I have to do that in my own personal life, just like you. And you could imagine that in pastoral leadership, I've been the pastor of this church for a lot of years now, and was it, I've served two churches. I served a church in Tulsa for almost nine years, and I served this church for almost 25 years. And you could expect in those sorts of settings, leadership, if you will, there are moments when you um, disappoint people. There are moments when the church disappoints people. and Sometimes it's been my doing. Sometimes it's the church's doing. Sometimes it's those people. And the result is the same each time. Pain gets introduced somewhere along the line. I introduce pain into their life. They might introduce pain into my life. And it just gets like this again. You know what I mean? And this happens in the church. 
And you wonder, how are we going to, how are we followers of Jesus Christ when this happens? A, a few months ago, Leslie and I were downtown. We went down there one night to have dinner, and um, we're walking down the sidewalk, and there was a couple, a married couple, who used to attend our church right there in front of us. Good people. They love Jesus. I can't say anything bad about them. But some time ago, they got crosswinds with the church. A long tail and... Frankly, I wasn't particularly involved in it. It was something the church did, and you know, you know how those things go. And um, I'm thinking, I mean, how's this going to go? I'm, I'm expecting a brief conversation. Hi, how are you? How are the kids? And bless you guys, and go on. So that's my expectation, all right? But I know there's some anger. This is the first time we've seen each other since all that's happened. And um, we walk up, and I put my hand out, and the fellow puts his hand out and says, Wayne, good to see you. Do you know what the lady did? She literally turned her back and looked the other way and refused to acknowledge me, or Leslie. It was junior high all over again, right? Sad. But here's my understanding of that situation, any like it. I'm in for the long-term adventure. This is, these, these things took a while to get messed up. They may take a while to get unwound, but I still love that couple. And I'm looking forward to the day. I pray for the day that they join us in worship again. And I'm looking forward to the, to the day when the love of Christ within us unwinds all that mess. And it's a life adventure that may take a while, and I don't know, maybe it'll take heaven to get it right. But in the meanwhile, what do I do? I pray. And I hope. And I extend my hand in greeting and say, how are you? How are you? You know, there's a situation in China that might give a little bit of insight on this. I want you to look at this photo. It's very lovely. It's a photo of all these colors. And um, it's a photo that comes out of a story from the Atlantic uh, magazine. It's a, it's a problem that's happening in China right now. Last year, in 20, um, 2017, a, a whole new uh, industry you know, broke out in China. Here was the deal. Uh, people walk everywhere. They have lots of bikes. And these, a lot of companies thought, you know, we could have this bike sharing thing where people can put in their credit card and they could just rent a bike wherever we could leave bikes. And so they had bikes, millions of bikes all across the country. And you could, if you came across one of these brightly colored bikes, you could get on it, you put your credit card in and you take it wherever you want and you just leave it right there. And then somebody else will come along and get it, and they'll ride it where they want to go. And the idea was, we'll have this. And, and it was brilliant, except the companies kind of overproduced the number of bikes that would, would be needed. And so riders would park their bikes anywhere, or, or frankly, just abandon them, resulting in bicycles piling up and blocking already crowded seats and pathways, streets, pardon me, and pathways. And the cities began to impound bikes, and because the companies, in an effort to corner the market, overproduced, way overproduced. And in more than a dozen cities across the country, they have now had to collect all those bikes and they put them in piles. That pile, that photo you see there is actually a pile of 120,000 used bikes less than a year old, all piled up and twisted together. Brand new bikes. Because somebody rode them and they just thought it, and, and you know what? I suspect 
that that twisted and jumbled pile describes how sometimes we feel when we try to work out love during relational struggles and weirdness and years and life and stuff and the language that we've used with each other. It, it's all messed up. It's like bulldozers have come along and just gone, mm, 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 and just got higher and higher and more twisted. Yeah, that's sort of what it's like, right? Relationships and love can get complicated. And at times they can look like a jumbled mess. But this is what I pray every day. I pray that I will hear God's voice to always learn about how to deal with people. How to deal with my family, my friends, my coworkers, the people in my neighborhood, the, the people that I, that I meet. I don't even know their name. The messes they make in their lives, the messes they make in my life, the messes I make in their life. I pray that in the midst of all of that, with all that stuff, I pray that I'll keep loving. And in the meanwhile, while I wait for it to be unwound, I abide by this scripture. Romans chapter 12 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of, anyone, of everyone. If it's possible. So in other words, he's... This is Paul the Apostle saying, if it's possible. So there may be some points where it may not be fully possible. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you. It's up to you. It's up to you, bud. It's up to you, mate. It's up to you. You, you do this. As far as it is possible with you. My mate just came out. My Australia just came out, didn't it? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's up to you. you. You choose to live at peace with everyone because you're not going to do barb for barb or jab for jab. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As a matter of fact, let's read this together, okay? Would you read it out loud with me in both rooms, please? All right? Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yeah. We'll live there this week, right? That's where we'll live. To that end, would you stand together, please, in both rooms, and let's pray about it. Our God in heaven, as we think about our relationships and how we kind of have the, this jumbled mess that's been bulldozed together and it gets higher and higher every, every time the bulldozer passes by. It's, that photo from China feels so appropriate that it describes what we've experienced. We, we have these moments where we really love and it's wonderful and the ride is really sweet, but then there are moments, Lord, where betrayal gets in there and misunderstanding and mistrust and we get language and words and life. God, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit this week, you would help us. You would help us as your people to, um, how we want to love. And uh, to that end, we're making a decision today that as much as it depends upon us, we will not repay evil with evil. And we will choose to do good. We may not even like it, God. <laughs> we may not like them. They certainly may not like us. There may be moments, God, when 
our intentions get rebuffed and our love gets once more misunderstood. But we're going to get out of the weeds of the mistrust and out of the weeds of anger. And we're, we're pushing back from bitterness, God. We're going to choose to love. We're not, we're not gullible. We're not naive. We get that it's weird and it's hard. But we will, God, be your people in the midst of these very difficult settings. At work, at school, at the house, across, across the country, Lord. <laughs> we pray for grace. That you've extended us grace, may we extend it then in response. In Christ's name, amen.